That's 1 Kings 11. King Solomon, however, loved many foreign women besides Pharaoh's daughter. Moabites, Ammonites, Edomites, Sidonians, and Hittites. They were from nations about which the Lord had told the Israelites, you must not intermarry with them because they will surely turn your hearts after their gods. Nevertheless, Solomon held fast to them in love. He had 700 wives of royal birth and 300 concubines, and his wives led him astray. As Solomon grew old, his wives turned his heart after other gods, and his heart was not fully devoted to the Lord his God, as the heart of David his father had been. He followed Ashtoreth, the goddess of the Sidonians, and Moloch, the detestable god of the Ammonites. So Solomon did evil in the eyes of the Lord. He did not follow the Lord completely, as David his father had done. On a hill east of Jerusalem, Solomon built a high place for Chemosh, the detestable god of Moab, and for Moloch, the detestable god of the Ammonites. He did the same for all his foreign wives, who burned incense and offered sacrifices to their gods. The Lord became angry with Solomon because his heart had turned away from the Lord, the God of Israel, who had appeared to him twice. Although he had forbidden Solomon to follow other gods, Solomon did not keep the Lord's command. So the Lord said to Solomon, Since this is your attitude, and you have not kept my covenant and my decrees, which I commanded you, I will most certainly tear the kingdom away from you and give it to one of your subordinates. Nevertheless, for the sake of David, your father, I will not do it during your lifetime. I will tear it out of the hand of your son. Yet I will not tear the whole kingdom from him, but will give him one tribe for for the sake of David, my servant, and for the sake of Jerusalem, which I have chosen. Then the Lord raised up against Solomon an adversary, Hadad the Edomite, from the royal line of Edom. Earlier, when David was fighting with Edom, Joab, the commander of the army who had gone up to bury the dead, had struck down all the men in Edom. Joab and all the Israelites stayed there for six months until they had destroyed all the men in Edom. But Hadad, still only a boy, fled to Egypt with some Edomite officials who had served his father. They set out from Midian and went to Paran. Then taking men from Paran with them, they went to Egypt, to Pharaoh, king of Egypt, who gave Hadad a house and land and provided him with food. Pharaoh was so pleased with Hadad that he gave him a sister of his own wife, Queen Tarpanes, in marriage. The sister of Tarpanes bore him a son named Genubath, whom Tarpanes brought up in the royal palace. There Genubath lived with Pharaoh's own children. While he was in Egypt, Hadad heard that David rested with his fathers and that Joab, the commander of the army, was also dead. Then Hadad said to Pharaoh, Let me go, so that I may return to my own country. What have you lacked here that you may want to go back to your own country? Pharaoh asked. Nothing, Hadad replied but do let me go. And God raised up against Solomon another adversary, 
Rezon, son of Eliada, who had fled from his master, Hadadezer, king of Zobah. He gathered men around him and became the leader of a band of rebels when David destroyed the forces of Zobah. The rebels went to Damascus, where they settled and took control. Rezon was Israel's adversary as long as Solomon lived, adding to the trouble caused by Hadad. So Rezon ruled in Aram and was hostile towards Israel. Also, Jeroboam, son of Nebat, rebelled against the king. He was one of Solomon's officials, an Ephraimite from Zeredah, and his mother was a widow named Zeruah. Here is the account of how he rebelled against the king. Solomon had built the supporting terraces and had filled in the gap in the wall of the city of David, his father. Now Jeroboam was a man of standing, and when Solomon saw how well the young man did his work, he put him in charge of the whole labor force of the house of Joseph. About that time, Jeroboam was going out of Jerusalem, and Ahijah, the prophet of Shiloh, met him on the way, wearing a new cloak. The two of them were alone out in the country, and Ahijah took hold of the new cloak he was wearing and tore it into twelve pieces. Then he said to Jeroboam, Take ten pieces for yourself, for this is what the Lord, the God of Israel, says. See, I'm going to tear the kingdom out of Solomon's hand and give you ten tribes. But for the sake of my servant David and the city of Jerusalem, which I have chosen out of all of the tribes of Israel, he will have one tribe. I will do this because they have forsaken me and worship Ashtoreth, the goddess of the Sidonians, Chemosh, the god of the Moabites, and Molech, the god of the Ammonites, and have not walked in my ways, nor done what is right in my eyes, nor kept my statutes and laws as David, Solomon's father, did. But I will not take the whole kingdom out of Solomon's hand. I have made him ruler all the days of his life for the sake of David, my servant, whom I chose and who observed my commands and statutes. I will take the kingdom from his son's hand and give you ten tribes. I will give one tribe to his son, so that David, my servant, may always have a lamp before me in Jerusalem, the city where I chose to put my name. However, as for you, I will take you, and you will rule over all that your heart desires. You will be king over Israel. If you do whatever I command you, and walk in my ways, and do what is right in my eyes by keeping my statutes and commands, as David my servant did, I will be with you. I will build you a dynasty as enduring as the one I built for David, and will give Israel to you. I will humble David's descendants because of this, but not forever. Solomon tried to kill Jeroboam, but Jeroboam fled to Egypt, to Shishak the king, and stayed there until Solomon's death. As for the other events of Solomon's reign, all he did and the wisdom he displayed, are they not written in the book of the Annals of Solomon? Solomon reigned in Jerusalem over all Israel for 40 years. Then he rested with his fathers and was buried in the city of David, his father, and Rehoboam, his son, succeeded him as king. This is the word of the Lord. Good morning, everybody. Thanks, James, for a long reading. Good morning, my name's Matt Banks, I'm one of the uh, assistant ministers here. It'd be lovely to meet you afterwards 
if we've not met. Let me pray as we start. Father, as, as always, we, we need your help to hear what you are saying to us in your word. We need your help to grasp eternal truths. We need your help to live for eternity, not just for the now. We need your help to cling to Jesus. So, Father, please work in our hearts this morning. Amen. Well, welcome back to One Kings. We had a a brief hiatus for three weeks when Matt was introducing us to the Honest Questions course. And now, for for two more weeks before we kind of get into Christmas, we're back in One Kings. Um, I don't know if you noticed this, but when when, uh, I preached on um, One Kings 9, I think it was, a a few weeks ago, did anyone notice what what tune Dave Dye, one of the guys who helps out on the sound desk, played just as the service finished? Holding Out for a Hero by Bonnie Tyler. That's where I'd sort of been going in the sermon. He's Solomon the hero we're holding out for. Uh, And Dave thought he'd um, help us learn that point by giving a soundtrack to the sermon. And he got me thinking, well, what, what, what other soundtracks could you come up with? So uh, the following week, when, we, uh, when I preached on 1 Kings 10, that was the, uh, that was the Queen of Sheba, coming, her, having heard about Solomon's great wealth and his great wisdom, coming to see for herself. And what happened? It took her breath away. So you could, you could certainly, uh, you could have take my breath away for that. For this morning... <laughs> don't shout out. Any guesses? I think, I think the soundtrack for this one is Tragedy. <laughs> Probably, as, uh, as um, the Bee Gees sang in 1979 or more recently, Steps in 1998. Yes, it was that long ago that you were dancing to Steps. It was Tragedy. Tragedy because in today's passage we see Solomon, the, the great king, the one to whom God had appeared twice in person, the one who had started so well, the one who, when God had said, what do you want? Ask me anything. Solomon hadn't been selfish. Rather, he'd asked for wisdom to rule his people. Solomon, as we've already said, whose fame and renown and wisdom was was the envy of all those around him. Solomon, who today we see finishes his life, as far as the account in 1 Kings goes, finishes his life as, we'd have to say, a a lust-fueled idolater. That That is a tragedy by anyone's standard. A tragedy. And of course, we, we know uh, God, God, isn't in the, God isn't in the business of, of making us feel bad, of telling us tragic stories just, just for the sake of it, just to rub our noses in it. We know from the New Testament that all these things are written for us, that we might, we might learn from the mistakes of God's people in the Old Testament. They're written for us so that, so that we, by God's grace, might stand firm where, where they fell. So yes, the soundtrack for this morning is tragedy, 
But my prayer, my hope is that as we look at Solomon, as we look at this sort of last chapter in Solomon's life, we will learn lessons so that God's verdict on our lives at the end of time is, is not a Bee Gees lyric. So we're going to be looking um, at this passage under three headings. Sorry, they're not on your handout, nor are they on the screen. We're going to be looking at this passage under three headings, okay? So firstly, we're going to look at Solomon's tragic idolatry. Solomon's tragic idolatry. Then we are going to look at God's active punishment. And then we are going to look at our only hope. Okay, so Solomon's tragic idolatry, God's act of punishment, our only hope. First of all, Solomon's tragic idolatry. And and here we're we're mainly focusing on verses 1 to 10. Okay, so verse 1. Here we go, straight, straight in. (laughs) Straight in. King Solomon, however, loved many foreign women besides Pharaoh's daughter. Moabites, Ammonites, Edomites, Sidonians, and Hittites. Man, verse 3, staggering, isn't it? Verse 3, he had 700 wives of royal birth and 300 concubines. I mean, this guy, this guy makes King, King Henry VIII look like a saint, doesn't he? Uh, I mean, look, let's be honest, I'm sure there's some base desire in, in most of us blokes at least who thinks, oh, a thousand, thousand women, it's a bit fun. I'm sure, I'm sure we think that in our base desires. But a thousand women, how, how terrifying. Men, that's, that's, remembering, that's remembering nearly two anniversaries a day. No, thank you. No. But more seriously, I mean, you've got to ask yourself the question, what, how self-centered do you have to be to, to take for yourself 700 Wives uh, and 300 concubines. How far away has Solomon strayed from God's plan, God's ideal for marriage, which is between one man and one woman exclusively for life, showing other person-centered love? He's wandered very, very, very far from the pack. I mean, think of the, think of the heartbreak uh, of any one of those thousand women. Think of how cheap you feel knowing that you're just Solomon's plaything until he finds a newer model. This is a very, very tragic turn of events in Solomon's life. But actually, that's not the ultimate problem here because look at at verse 2. The real problem is this. There... These women were from nations about which the Lord had told the Israelites, you must not intermarry with them because they will surely turn your hearts after their gods. Nevertheless, Solomon held fast to them in love. You see, way back in Deuteronomy 7, God God had warned his people of the dangers of marrying intermarriage between people who didn't worship him as Lord. And not, not because God is a racist, absolutely not, but because then as now, God, God knows that it's excruciatingly difficult, maybe even impossible, to, to give yourself in romantic love to someone who doesn't worship 
God as number one in their life. And also at the same time yourself, keep God as the number one priority in your life. It is, it is virtually impossible to do that. And God loves his people too much to, to let them put anything other than him as first in their lives. And so God warned them, don't, don't intermarry with people who don't love me first. But Solomon hadn't heeded those warnings. Verse 2, whereas the Bible says, cling to me in love. God says in the Bible, cling to me in love. End of verse 2. Solomon clung or held fast to these women in love. And so tragically, verse 4, have a look down. As Solomon grew old, his wives turned his heart after other gods, and his heart was not fully devoted to the Lord his God, as the heart of David his father had been. He followed Ashtoreth, the goddess of the Sidonians, and Molech, the detestable god of the Ammonites. Solomon did not finish well. You could say, in fact, that his fall was spectacular. Verse 6 carries on. So Solomon did evil in the eyes of the Lord. He did not follow the Lord completely, as David his father had done. On a hill east of Jerusalem. On a hill east of Jerusalem. That is, that is the Mount of Olives. That is the hill that you could see if you were stood at the temple. Sort of in, in plain sight of the temple, as it were. Solomon built a place of worship for the God of Moab. Carrying on verse 7. Solomon built a high place for Chemosh, the detestable God of Moab, and for Molech, the detestable God of the Ammonites. He did the same for all his foreign wives who burned incense and offered sacrifices to their God. If that that is not a tragic downfall, if that is not a tragic end to what promised to be a a glorious life lived for God, I I don't know what is. And as I said, this this is written for our instructions. We've got to ask the question, what what can we learn if we're anxious that, that our lives don't end in it's kind of spiritual tragedy. I think, I think one of the, I was going to say interesting, probably you should say one of the most terrifying things I think about Solomon is that it doesn't seem to be the case that one day he just uh, woke up out of bed and said, I- I'm going to apostatize. I'm going to t- I feel like turning my back on the Lord today. And many of us, if we've had loved ones who have turned their back on the Lord. Most of us will know that very rarely does it happen just like that. Often it is a gradual, a gradual turning away. And when we see how Solomon's life finishes, we, we actually then realize what the author has been doing all along. I mean, we've touched on this through the, through the series on One Kings. But knowing how it now ends in Solomon's life, you see that the author has been kind of dropping hints the whole way through 1 Kings up to this point. Things were not all right in Solomon's heart. Right almost from the earliest. So if we look back at, um, we, won't, we won't flick back, but if we look back at chapter 3, uh, we were told that Solomon thought, even back then, that it, was, that it was okay to worship the Lord at sort of pagan sites of worship rather than at the only place that God said uh, it's okay to worship him at, i.e. the tabernacle at that stage. Solomon thought, it's okay, I don't have to exactly listen to God. 
Uh, earlier on in chapter, chapter 3, the, his very first marriage to, to Pharaoh's daughter. Yeah, yeah, the daughter of Pharaoh, the daughter of the Egyptian ruler, Egypt, out of the country that God had, had brought them. That doesn't, it doesn't quite sound right. And then you think of some of the descriptions of Solomon's wealth. And we said last time, you know, God, the wealth of Solomon is a blessing from God. There's, there's no doubt about that. But yet there's a kind of, there's a dark side, I suppose you could say, to Solomon's wealth. Back again in Deuteronomy, in Deuteronomy 17, God had said, God had said, um, when you get a king, Israel, make sure that king doesn't acquire for himself uh, excessive gold and horses and chariots. And definitely don't let that king get that stuff from Egypt. But the eagle-eyed amongst you will have noticed chapter 10, the end of it. That's exactly where Solomon is getting his stuff from Egypt. Chapter 6 and 7, Solomon, Solomon, Solomon built the temple. But do you remember when Matt preached on it? It's bizarrely, that in, the, in the description of the building of the temple, there's a description of the way that Solomon built his own house. And the writer just subtly drops in, oh yeah, Solomon spent seven years building the temple, but nearly twice as long building his own house and making it magnificent. Then finally, another, another hint that the whole way through there's been compromise in Solomon's life is that whenever you look at the description of his great public building works, because he, he, he was prolific in what he got done, but those building works were, were off the back of, of forced labor. Sometimes, uh, often, uh, of people and nations he's conquered. But, uh, but a hint that, not, not, in the same, not in the same way, but he also uh, got, got Israelites to, to help in this process. Although not, not quite in the same way as those who weren't Jewish. And you've got to ask, well, the, a man who, who uses forced labor to, to get his stuff done, is that, is that indicative of the same heart who, that, uh, that gets to himself a thousand lovers? Is this a man who perhaps doesn't quite have any regard for people? He just sees them as objects to be used to fulfill his pleasure. I mean, look, in each of those things, the way he acquired his wealth, how he got stuff done, um, uh, where he worshipped, you could, you could excuse all of those things. Oh, okay, nobody's perfect. You, you could excuse them. And, and it's true in some sense, none, none of them are particularly bad in and of themselves. But the cumulative effect is the seedbed for this catastrophic turning away from the Lord in later life. See, that's the problem with small sins. If left unchecked, their cumulative effect can be disastrous. Uh, I'm sure many of us have read um, C.S. Lewis's wonderful book, The Screwtape Letters. If you haven't, put it on your list for Father Christmas. It's it's brilliant. In it, C.S. Lewis imagines uh, the letters that an experienced demon sends to his, his uh, nephew, sort of his young protege, a guy called Wormwood. And, and um, Screwtape is trying to give advice to this young demon, how to tempt 
a human that he's set his sights on away from Christianity. Uh, and in this book, I mean, C.S. Lewis is just a genius at understanding human nature. But in one of the, one of the letters, Screwtape says this. He says to the young Wormwood, Like all young tempters, you are anxious to be able to report spectacular wickedness. But do remember, the only thing that matters is the extent to which you separate the man from the enemy, i.e. God. It does not matter how small the sins are, provided that their cumulative effect is to edge the man away from the light and out into the nothing. Murder is no better than Netflix. C.S. Lewis didn't write that. Murder is no better than Netflix, if Netflix can do the trick. Indeed, the safest road to hell is the gradual one, the gentle slope, soft underfoot, without sudden turnings, without milestones, without signposts. Your affectionate uncle, Screwtape. Sobering, isn't it? Uh, Christians in the um, 1600s were, were fond of describing sin uh, as like a sort of a, a nest of baby vipers. And they kind of wriggle out. And as a Christian, what you were to do was to put them to death when they were small. Lest they grow. Lest they become big. And do you great harm. A sobering image. That's a sobering image, I think, whether we'd call ourselves Christian here this morning or not. Sin in our lives, if left unchecked, can have tragic, tragic consequences. And I wonder what would, um, if Screwtape was writing to Wormwood about you, what would be the small the small sins, the undramatic sins that he would advise you to be tempted with so that your feet would start down that slippery slope. Oh, let him justify buying things he doesn't really need by telling himself they're not really that expensive. Let her tell herself it's only a novel. It would be prudish to call it pornographic. Let her believe it's okay to be harsh to people if being harsh helps people to do what she thinks is the right thing. Let him blame his wife's tiredness for why he's enjoying spending so much time with the woman he works with. All ways, all ways in which small sins can start, and if left unchecked, lead us on that gentle slope away from the Lord. See, we've seen tragedy in Solomon's life, and if, if our lives are not to end in similar tragedy, the first lesson we need to learn is this, is that small sins, if left unchecked, lead to disastrous problems in our lives. See, the person who finishes well in the Christian life is the person who won't let those small sins go unchecked. And so back into the story of Solomon, verse 9. The Lord became angry 
with Solomon because his heart had turned away from the Lord, the God of Israel, who had appeared to him twice. Although he had forbidden Solomon to follow other gods, Solomon did not keep the Lord's command. Okay, so we've seen Solomon's, Solomon's tragic idolatry. Secondly, God's active punishment. And here we're broadly, verses 11 to 33, God's active punishment. Verse 11, the Lord said to Solomon, since this is your attitude and since you have not kept my covenant and my decrees which I commanded you, I will most certainly tear the kingdom away from you and give it to one of your subordinates. This is God, excuse me, this is God being entirely faithful to what he promised. Back in chapter 9, God had said, if Solomon, if you don't put me first, then there will be consequences. And in today's passage, we see, we see God being true to his word, punishing Solomon. Verse 14. There's three adversaries that the Lord raises up against Solomon in this passage. Verse 14, then the Lord raised up against Solomon an adversary, Hadad the Edomite, from the royal line of Edom. And then flip down, verse 23, and God raised up against Solomon another adversary, Reason, son of Eliada, who had fled from his master, Hadadeza, king of Zobah. Now look, uh, as James read, you'll have noticed there is an awful lot of historical background to the way that the Lord raises up these adversaries. We don't have time to go into it. I think the historical background is there to, to just underline how this is the Lord's doing. You see, these are, in both cases, it is manifestly the Lord who has done this. It makes it clear in those two verses, 14 and 23. This is not just sort of cause and consequence. This is not just uh, political or military rivals kind of um, sniffing out the, the zeitgeist and recognizing that there's soon to be a power vacuum. No, this is directly and actively from the Lord. And then verse 26, uh, there's one more adversary to come. Also, Jeroboam, son of Nebat, rebelled against the king. He was one of Solomon's officials, an Ephraimite from Zerida. You see, Hadad and Reason had been from outside of Israel. Jeroboam is an adversary from the inside. He was one of Solomon's officials. Then skip down to verse 29. About that time, Jeroboam was going out of Jerusalem. And Ahijah, the prophet of Shiloh, met him on the way, wearing a new cloak. The two of them were alone out in the country. And Ahijah took hold of the new cloak he was wearing and tore it into 12 pieces. Then he said to Jeroboam, take 10 pieces for yourself, for this is what the Lord, the God of Israel says. See, I'm going to tear the kingdom out of Solomon's hand and give you 10 tribes. But for the sake of my servant David and the city of Jerusalem, which I have chosen out of all the tribes of Israel, he will have one tribe. Solomon will have one tribe. So again, note how how this punishment, this splitting of the kingdom, is God's doing. God takes the initiative by sending his prophet to meet Jeroboam. And he does this 
as is often the case with the prophets in the Old Testament, he theatrically demonstrates what is going to happen. He tears his cloak up into 12 pieces and says to Jeroboam, here, you have, you have 10 pieces of cloth because I'm going to give you 10 of the 12 tribes of Israel to rule over. But I'm going to reserve one of these pieces of cloth, only one, only one tribe for Solomon to rule over. And Jeroboam goes, thank you very much, Mr. Prophet, but you're lousy at maths. Because actually 10 plus 1 is not 12. If you spotted that, I think the best explanation is, is that when, when God says he's going to give one tribe to Solomon, he, he probably means one tribe in addition to Solomon's own tribe. So the tribe of Benjamin and the tribe of Judah he's going to give Solomon to rule over. See, as a punishment for Solomon's divided heart, God is going to divide Solomon's kingdom. Now, the first people to read this, to read about, uh, to read 1 Kings, that they were actually reading this uh, about 350 years after the events described here about Solomon. They, for them... This prophecy about the, the kingdom being split was, was old news. It was 350 years ago in their country's history. And it's here, all this description, all this detail, all this historical background is there to convince them and to convince us that, that all that has happened, all of God's punishment here and in the years that followed is no accident but it is God's active punishment of sin. Sobering. And if our lives are not to end in tragedy like Solomon's, that is, that is the second lesson that we have to remember. We have to, we have to remember. Even though often we'd rather put it out of our minds, even though it's perhaps the most unpolitically correct thing to talk about or preach about, we have to remember that God is a God who actively punishes sin. One of my, um, my favourite movies is um, uh, The Usual Suspects, uh, with um, uh, Kevin Spacey in it. Uh, that's quite old now as well. 90s. Number 24 on IMDb, by the way, of all-time movies. If you haven't watched it, it's very good. Usual Suspects. And the tagline to that movie is this. Uh, the greatest, the greatest trick the devil ever pulled was convincing the world that he did not exist. The greatest trick the devil ever pulled was convincing the world he did not exist. You know, and there's some, uh, a bit of wisdom in that, whoever, whoever wrote the tagline to that movie. But strictly speaking, the Bible would say this. The greatest trick the devil ever pulled was convincing the world that God doesn't punish sin. The greatest trick the devil ever pulled is convincing the world that God doesn't punish sin. That was the lie Satan peddled to the first human beings, wasn't it? When he tempted them to say, turn your back on God, didn't he say to them, you you will not surely die. God will not surely punish you. God's not, he doesn't punish sin. That was the lie back then. And that is one of the lies that that Satan keeps peddling today. 
And the lesson from 1 Kings 11 is don't believe that lie. God, God does punish sin. There is a day coming when God's righteous judgment will be revealed to every single person who is living and who has ever lived. And in Romans, Paul says, God on that day will give to each person according to what he has done. To those who by persistence in doing good seek glory, honor, and immortality, he will give eternal life. But for those who are self-seeking and who reject the truth and follow evil, there will be wrath and anger. And I don't know about you, but I'm, I'm someone who falls into that latter category most of the time. So if we don't want our lives to end in tragedy, the first lesson was that we needed to take sin seriously, even, perhaps especially, the small sins. The second lesson we need to learn is that God actively punishes sin. Now, at this point, you could hear those two warnings and say, okay, well, if sin is serious, if God actively punishes sin, well, then what I need to do is to try really hard to be good. I need to ask God to help me be more holy. But if that's your response, then I, I certainly won't have done my job properly this morning. Because we're going to see in our final point, what is our only hope in the, fact, in the face of the fact that sin is serious and God actively punishes sin? Well, our hope is not ourselves. So finally, our only hope, verses 34 to 43, briefly as we finish. Our only hope, verses 34 to 43. See, I hope you will have spotted the whole way through this passage, the, the, the extent here in the first instance, the extent of the tragedy that befalls Solomon is mitigated somehow by... God's commitment to Solomon's father, David. Did you spot that? It's it's there quite often in this passage. So have a look at verse 13. Yet I will not tear the whole kingdom from Solomon, but will give him one tribe for the sake of David my servant and for the sake of Jerusalem, which I I have chosen. Or again, verse 36. I will give one tribe to his son, so that David, my servant, may always have a lamp before me in Jerusalem, the city where I chose to put my name. Or again, verse 39. I will humble David's descendants because of this, but not forever. There there is something about God's commitment, God's love to David, that, that mitigates the punishment that Solomon receives. And you see, and that's because a generation ago, when, when uh, God spoke to David, he said to him, I'm going to set my love upon you unconditionally. You see, and, and actually, whether or not we're Christians here this morning, when we, hear that, when we hear that sin is serious, when we hear that God actively punishes sin, the, the outbox it mustn't be Oh, I'm going to try harder to be good myself. It mustn't be that. 
Rather, it is, it is to cry out, is there any way, is there any way at all that somehow I could avail myself of the love that God unconditionally promised to David and his descendants? Is, is there some way, is there any possibility that the, the punishment I deserve for my sin could be mitigated if I came under the protection of King David and his descendants. That is the only hope that anyone has when we're faced with the reality and seriousness of our sin and the activeness of God's punishment. That is our only hope. That's certainly what the first hearers of this would have realized because they'd seen generations come and generations go. Years and years and years of people being told how serious their sin is and how serious God's judgment is. And yet none of them had been able to to live up to God's standards. The people who first heard this knew knew or should least have known that, that the only hope was not to be found in themselves, but was to be found outside of themselves. Somehow, somehow to avail themselves of the love that God had promised to show David and his descendants. And the prophets had given them hope that indeed this may be possible. So that's where the the quote on the front of your service sheets come from. Uh, From Isaiah 55. Through Isaiah, the Lord cries out, Come, all you who are thirsty, come to the waters. Give ear and come to me. Hear me that your soul may live. I will make an everlasting covenant with you. My faithful love promised to David. So yes, the prophets held out hope. There is hope that you may be able to avail yourself of the love shown to David. The punishment you deserve may be somehow mitigated. But it wasn't until 500 years after that prophecy that how exactly that could happen comes into focus. We all, of course, know it's through Jesus, David's great, 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 great son, I was in the office um, uh, before the service, and in a few weeks' time, we're going to be treated to a nativity play by our little ones. And imagine there'll be, there'll be someone dressed up in one of their mum's unwanted white sheets. Um, and what is the angel Gabriel going to say to Mary? He's going to say, The son who you bear, he will be great and will be called the son of the Most High. The Lord will give him the throne of his father David forever. His kingdom will never end. What will the angels in the nativity play then say to the shepherds? To you in David's town this day is born a saviour. And Jesus, King David's great, 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 great grandson. When he's baptised, what will, what will God his father say to him? He will say, you are my son whom I love. With you I am well pleased. And that same son, throughout his life, went around offering out the hope of mercy. Offering out the hope of punishment mitigated. Saying things like, come to me, all you who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Saying things like, the Father loves me and has placed everything in my hands. Whoever believes in me has eternal life. See, 1 Kings teaches us that, yes, sin is serious. 1 Kings teaches us that God actively punishes sins. But 1 Kings 11 just 
tips its hat, makes us think, makes us realize, for those of us who know, makes us rejoice. And actually, our real hope of having our punishment mitigated is not, is not trying hard to be good. Our real hope is crying out like blind Bartimaeus in Mark 10, Son of David, have mercy on me. And if we do that, if we come to Jesus, we will find not just, not just that out the punishment we deserve is mitigated, as in it's kind of reduced a little bit. We will find that our sin is completely forgiven. We will find that God offers us a blank slate, a fresh start. More than that, we will find that God offers us to treat us as if we were loved in the same way. To treat us in the same way that he treats Jesus as his beloved son. I hope none of our, the theme tuned to any of our lives is, is tragedy. I hope that, I pray that. But that will only happen to the extent that we say, Son of David, have mercy on me. Let me pray. Father, we, we find it so hard to think and talk of your active punishment. Even though deep down we are so grateful that you are a God who upholds perfect holiness. Father, we find it hard to put to death the small sins in our lives. So we ask that you would help us. But more than that, Heavenly Father, we ask that you would help us to flee into the arms, under the wings of your great Son, the Lord Jesus Christ. That by his death and resurrection, we might avail ourselves of the love that you have for him. That we might know what it is to look up and see a father's smile down on us, sons and daughters adopted, sons and daughters who in Christ you love. Amen.